I just make a bunch of sounds as I walk up on stage to get the mic on. Alrighty. Uh, tonight we're reading from Ephesians 3, uh, verses 1 to 13. Someone stop me if that's wrong, but I believe that is correct. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. Good evening, everyone. Pastor Charlie is not well, which is why I am here speaking tonight. He was scheduled to speak, but apparently... According to the family, he is in recovery. Those lights are very bright. Do you think? Can you see my eyebrows? It's truth. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's helpful normally to be able to see the faces of the people you are speaking to. This is a taste a little bit. This is better than Carol's. Carol's is absolutely worst because you're talking to the blackness. You cannot see one response, one reaction from anybody. It's very difficult to speak in that context. So pray for me, please, because I got the Guernsey to do it again this year and... Um, it's a very important opportunity for us to speak the gospel into, into the community. Um, and we might pray tonight that I can speak the truth here, because I can't see you. I can see you. I'll preach to you. Quick questions are available. Um, Pastor Charlie normally does these, prints them off, but because he, he sent them out to the life group leaders, it's a bit echoey, this microphone, isn't it, don't you think? <clears throat> hello, hello? told you and anyway uh, I had to do that I forgot to do it this morning but it's there for tonight so if you'd like to get a copy of these there are about 10 questions that reflect on this whole chapter which are good personally but also really for conversations with other believers whether it's in a group context or a small group just chatting after church or whatever this morning we went through chapter 3 and and so I'm doing it again tonight but as I said this morning we emphasised pretty much the first half of the chapter and tonight I'm going to emphasise more the second half which is the prayer not that I didn't cover the prayer this morning but I want to cover it 
perhaps with a little bit more detail or something like that. So I'm going to skip over, I'm going to race through the first half for those who haven't heard the first half of what this chapter is about and then we're going to slow down and focus into the second bit and we shall be done by nine o'clock. <clears throat> this Wednesday the pastors are going to meet with a possible intentional interim pastor. So that's a great opportunity for us. Please pray for that and pray that, you know, that goes well. The important thing is that we discern together with the board uh, the right person to come. So that's this Wednesday. Last Monday, I just before that I received a CV from a Chinese pastor, a Mandarin-speaking pastor, and on Monday I met him, he and I, Alvin and I met him, and he is a Mandarin-speaking pastor who is very interested in coming and joining us here at Sunnybank to be a Mandarin-speaking pastor to our Mandarin congregation. Ten years we have been waiting for this man. Ten years. And God brings him to us. He's currently a senior pastor of another church in Brisbane, but he believes his time there is coming to an end. He took long service leave and he travelled around all the churches. He came here on our anniversary weekend and he thoroughly enjoyed it and felt connected. And then his mentor had said, why don't you try Sunnybank? And then something else happened that sort of led him here. And so he sort of suspects God might be leading him here. Very early days on that yet. But please pray about that too. At our members meeting in November, November 19th, then if that goes ahead, then we'll be talking about an interventional interim senior pastor. We're talking about a Mandarin pastor. Two people have been nominated and they're being interviewed at the moment to be joining our pastoral team. That's two more elders. Uh, there's another potential for another associate pastor to perhaps replace Pastor Charlie and fit into his role of a young adults and connect groups. There's a possibility of another one. We have some students in training for ministry. You see what's happening? <clears throat> I've been here for 20 years. So I'm the cork in the bottle. Now God has taken the cork out and suddenly all these wonderful things are happening. <laughs> and we shall close in prayer. Isn't God good? His timing is exactly right. He's got it. He is in control and he, he loves this church and he's got good plans for this church and he's going to do good things through this church. That's just we need to be patient, we need to wait. This may be the answer, it may not be, in which case we need to continue to faithfully seek him and be obedient to him. Yeah, I have uh, seven weeks to go. It's not long, is it? Uh, after this Sunday, I think it's seven Sundays. Um, and God hasn't told us yet what we'll be doing next year. So I suspect it'll be nothing, um, which I am looking forward to. Rhonda, of course, has all sorts of plans and lists that she wants me to be doing. Could you please pray for me to be delivered from such oppression? <clears throat> Just kidding. Let's pray. Thanks, Heavenly Father, we can be together. Thank you, Lord, that you've been at work. Thank you for these opportunities you are right now presenting to us as a church. We ask that you might guide us, direct us to the people of your choice. Uh, Lord, we love you and it's because you love us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each other. 
and help us tonight to learn together from this portion of your word to learn more about you, to learn more about the Lord Jesus and to learn more about your plan and purpose for each one of us. We ask and pray this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Here we go. That's not a bad heading, a summary of what the chapter is about. It's in two parts. It should be secret singular, not secrets. There's God's secret revealed. God's got a um, has always had a hidden part of his plan. It's been written in the scriptures, but it's been hidden, as this passage says. And then there's this wonderful prayer. In fact, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul starts with, I'm going to pray, and then he suddenly diverts. After verse 1, there's a dash. It's like he suddenly goes down this other route and then gives this wonderful teaching. <clears throat> this morning I did say that God delights to use the unlikely. I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's to do something with human pride, um, or at least that it's very obviously that God did it, not us. Um, when God wanted to save the miners in Bristol, and when he wanted to save the smugglers in Cornwall in England back in the 18th century, he went to Oxford, took a scholar out of Oxford and sent him and said, I want you to go and preach the gospel to these people. And he went. And he was used by God incredibly. His name, John Wesley. You would have heard of his name. And so too throughout human history, God raises up different people, often the unlikely. That's true in my conversion, that God used the most unlikely person, somebody that I had nothing in common with. I was into sport, he wasn't. He was into science and I wasn't. He was a student, he used to study hard, I didn't. Opposites, we never connected. There was no social connection for any of us except one day, except we're in the same classroom, um, <clears throat> walking out the school gate, going home for lunch, and I said to him, Malcolm, um, what's a Christian? So God had been working in my heart and life and I knew he was a Christian, but I didn't know what a Christian was. And I was pretty ignorant in those days. Um, and he told me, and it took months for me to finally get it. God loves to use the unlikely. So be open, be available. God might very well want to use you with somebody else. It seems quite strange that you wouldn't have expected. As I said this morning, God raises up white, white missionaries, white-skinned missionaries, and sends them to black nations. Or God raises up Asian people and then sends them to Africa or to England or Europe or whatever. God just loves to cross racial barriers and do the unexpected. Well, when God wanted to work in the Gentiles to reach them, God took the most unlikely person. He picked a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, he picked a person who wouldn't even fellowship with or eat with a Gentile. Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Named, after, named by his parents after the first king of Israel because they were from the same tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was heading the race when it came to being a Jew. I suspect he was in fact a member of the Sanhedrin. Not every person thinks this, but there are a few scholars and I would happen to agree with them. I think he was a member of the Sanhedrin who actually voted about killing the Lord Jesus. That means, of course, that he would have been married. He would have been married to a Jewish lady. And of course, then when he got converted, I think she left him. Because when he was converted, in the letters he writes that he is unmarried. Which can quite literally mean once married, but now divorced. Now, not married. Unmarried. That's beside the point. <clears throat> Parents called him Saul. When he got 
arrested by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He uh, used not his Jewish name, but his Gentile name, which is Paul. From then on, he always used his Gentile name because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And most unlikely means of God saving those people. But God used the Apostle Paul powerfully. And if you met him, according to a second century description, you wouldn't be impressed with his physique. He was a short man. He was baldy-headed, bow-legged, and he had one eyebrow that met in the middle. That's the description that's given of us. And we know from the book of Galatians that he had very poor eyesight. So he doesn't appear to be a physically impressive character, a massive intellect though, whom God took and transformed and used incredibly. God's still doing that sort of stuff. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, he always referred to himself as the prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he pauses. He was going to go and pray, and then he suddenly diverts. He spent three years in Ephesus, founding the church and and the surrounding areas and the gospel spreading, but now about ten years, roughly, have passed. And so the church in Ephesus has people in it that may very well not have met him. So he writes, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. Surely you have heard about the stewardship, the job, the task that God has given me, which is particularly to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. When the Apostle Paul was converted, he was in Damascus, and you remember this, God spoke to a guy called Ananias and said, I want you to go to this street, straight street, house of Jason, where there is a man and he's praying. Um, And I want you to lay your hands upon him and I want you to baptise him. And Ananias objects, says, Lord, do you know that this person is one who goes around arresting Christians and having them executed? Don't you like that? The honesty of Ananias in prayer. Lord, don't you know? Yeah, I know. But you go and do what I've asked you to do because he is a chosen instrument of mine. And I will use him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and I'll show him how much he has to suffer for my sake. He'll go before Gentiles and kings and so on. He's a chosen instrument. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. What was this? That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I've already written briefly in chapter 1, I referred to it. Chapter 2, I alluded to it. And now he's explaining it in a bit more detail. Nobody told him this. No human apostle, no no other person. God revealed it to him. He spent three years in Arabia where the Lord himself was teaching Paul for three years. Just like the Lord taught the 12 disciples for two or three years, say he personally taught the Lord Jesus spiritually this revelation. <clears throat> in reading this, uh, then you'll be able to understand my insight into this, the mystery of Christ, in which it wasn't made known before to previous generations. It was hidden by God. It was in the scriptures. But when they read the scriptures, they didn't understand it. Just like when we read the scriptures, sometimes we don't understand it. But now, after Jesus, the Holy Spirit is revealing it to the apostles and to the prophets. And he revealed it to me. What is it? The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are now accepted 
because of Jesus. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to eat kosher food. They don't have to do the festivals. They don't have to do all of the sacrifices and all of the other things. The Gentiles are now heirs, members and sharers together, together, together in the promise of Jesus. Jesus says, God through Jesus has broken down the wall of separation and now anybody and everybody can come to faith in the true and living God through Jesus who makes the way open. Although I am the least of all of the Lord's people, less than the least, the Apostle Paul always refers to himself like that, at least four times in the New Testament. Ephesians is about halfway, two-thirds of the way through his ministry, through his life. To Timothy, he'll do it again, which is the last letter, and that's at the end of his life. He never got over the fact that God arrested him, forgave him for all of his sins and terrible things that he had done, had mercy on him, and then takes him and uses him to impact others. He never recovered from it. It always amazed him. And in his writings, as he does in this chapter, he'll suddenly just burst forth into praise and thanks, a doxology, and so on. Um, God's grace to me was to go and preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. What was God's intent? Why did he keep it a secret for so long? Wasn't that a bit foolish if God wanted all of the world to know? Then why did he wait so long? <clears throat> well, number one, he was giving Israel opportunity to be obedient. God wanted them to be a light to the nations. And they pretty much failed in doing that. But he also was using this time to educate the angels. And not just the good angels, but also the fallen angels, the rulers and authorities referred to in this verse. God's intent was that through Jesus, those people who were separated, irreconcilable, Jew and Gentile, have now been brought together into one new group, the church. And it's through the church by... That was my heart. <laughs> through the church, as we live out the gospel correctly, and the church is not perfect, but as we live out the gospel correctly, then that is not just a witness to other people. It's a witness to the angels in heaven, and it's a witness to the, demon, the demons, Satan and the demons, in the heavenly realms. And they are displaying God's manifold wisdom. It's not foolishness. It's what God had intended all along. And the angels are continually learning. We have been... Um, they are amazed at us. We are the only creatures made in the image of God. They were there at creation. They were there in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. They were there all the way through human history, watching and learning. They were there when Jesus came into the world at Christmas. The angels are there in the temptation. The angels are there at Calvary. Remember Jesus said he could have called 12, 12 legions of angels. They were armed and ready to come. They would have defended him. They were absolutely gobsmacked that God himself would leave the throne of heaven to come to earth, become a man, a human, in order to die for us. These people, these rebels... The angels are just scratching their heads and they're amazed at God's grace and mercy to the undeserving. Us. And that's what happens now. When a sinner repents, what do the angels do? 
rejoice. They're watching. They're still amazed. He did it again. He saved another one. How long will this go on for? There are now billions of us. And so God is using the church to demonstrate his manifold wisdom throughout the cosmos. That's a huge responsibility for us to be the church, to be reconciled to one another, to love one another as he obeys, calls us to be obedient to. Let's move on. This has been his eternal purpose, always to accomplish it through the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is central to human history and central to the scriptures and central to our Christian walk. This is one of my favourite verses. This is the NIV. In him, in Jesus, and through faith in him, what happens? We can now approach God with freedom and confidence. I like the New Living Translation. Now, because of Jesus and our faith in him, we can come boldly into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. I just love that translation. That really sings for me. Because in my prayer life, I better keep going quickly. I'm running out of time. And I haven't got to the prayer. In my prayer life, I often imagine myself opening a door, a large door, and walking into the throne room of heaven and talking to my Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus, or to the Holy Spirit. Assured of a glad welcome. I ask you, the Apostle Paul says, don't be discouraged. And they were because he was arrested. He was under chained to a Roman soldier. And they thought, why doesn't God set him free? And so they were discouraged. But God was, in fact, using him in prison to lead to the conversion of many of the Roman soldiers, but also to write New Testament letters. God was still using him. So don't be discouraged, Paul says. Circumstances may not be favourable, but God's at work achieving his purposes. Bang. And for that reason, I kneel before the Father. Kneeling is interesting because he's chained to a Roman soldier. So he is unashamedly... I don't think he is demonstrating or forcing his Christianity on the poor soldier that is chained to him. I think he's just being sincere and genuine. And I think he kneels because he finds that helpful um, to have the right attitude in his heart. Of course... Do we have to kneel? No, the Bible says all different sorts of ways for us to pray. You can stand, raising hands. <clears throat> you can certainly kneel. Some churches, in fact, have a thing called kneelers, where you put it down and you kneel on that, and so on. You can bow, you can prostrate yourself like the Lord Jesus. You can, like David, be seated. You can walk around. Some people pray while they're driving. Some people should pray while they're driving. <clears throat> you pray when you're lying down best way to go to sleep at night is talk to the Lord Jesus go to sleep talking to him do you have to close your eyes when you pray do you have to hold your hands together no none of that usually I do not all the time usually I close my eyes and I normally put my hands together three ministers were chatting together one day in a coffee shop one minister said when you pray you have to close your eyes You put your hands together and the hands must be pointed heavenward and then you can pray. That's the right posture for prayer. Another minister said, uh, I think sitting is okay, not slouching, not having your legs crossed or anything like that. You should be sitting up, but sitting is okay. But kneeling is preferred. The third guy said, I believe we should stand with our eyes open and our hands raised. 
I was in a coffee shop and uh, overheard by a Telstra technician and he said, gentlemen, excuse me, I overheard what you were saying. I'd just like to inform you that the strongest prayer I ever prayed was when I was dangling by my feet 30 metres in the air. Hell, is posture important? It is important if it helps the heart attitude and the mind and the concentration. Why do you close your eyes? Well, so you're not distracted. It's not mandatory. I don't always close my eyes. And sometimes in groups, like connect groups or Bible study groups, sometimes I don't close my eyes. And if you look around the group when you're praying, if you see somebody else has got their eyes open and if you make eye contact, then you close your eyes. <laughs> Which makes it seem like you weren't praying. I do confess this, that when I am in public, when I'm in a coffee shop, and we often pray with whatever, the accountability group or other people that I meet with, then I don't like closing my eyes. Why not? Well, I don't know, but I've observed this about myself, that when I close my eyes in public in a coffee shop, I suddenly become far more aware people are looking at me. So I leave my eyes open and pray. Is that because I'm a wuss? Could be. <laughs> or it's because when I pray, I don't want to be distracted. So I do what is helpful. And it's not a rule, it's not mandatory. The Apostle Paul, for him, he knelt. Um, yeah. If you've never knelt, try it. See how you go. When you get to my age, it can be more distracting because of the pain levels rising. Some people write their prayers out. I don't know if you do. I've tried that. That doesn't work for me. But for some people, it really works. They write it out and then they pray it. Thinking is not necessarily praying unless your thinking is directed towards God. Otherwise, you're just thinking. And if you've never prayed out loud, try that as well. When I became a Christian, somebody told me this, and I found it so helpful because I struggled with prayer. Get an empty chair and put it in front of you and imagine the Lord Jesus sitting in that chair and talk to him. That helped me. Maybe that'll help you. Gee, all of that off one word, Neil. It's going to be a long night. Uh, it's, I kneel before the Father, and it's because of the Father that every family in heaven on earth derives its name. That's where families come from, from him, from the Creator, because he's in a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does he pray? Four things. I pray firstly that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. I pray that you'll be strong spiritually. He doesn't pray for them physically. He doesn't pray for them materially. And that's not a bad thing. God is concerned about every aspect of our life. But his emphasis in this prayer is to pray for us and our spiritual walk, our spiritual life, to be spiritually strong in the inner man. What's the inner man? I couldn't think of a better translation than that. Um, you know, it's the inner, the inner you, the real you, your heart, if you like, your inner real self. What does it mean to strengthen that? It means that your motives, your desires, your attitudes, your thoughts are all controlled by his spirit. You are yielded, submissive, filled with his spirit and directed by his spirit. Paul prays that they will be spiritually strong inside. 
Inside of us, we have a thing called the old man, the old nature, and the new nature. We were born with this one, the old nature. We are born again and given a new nature, but these two are in conflict. And depending on which one you feed will determine which one is stronger or dominant in you, Galatians chapter 5. It's a bit like weeds and a flower. What do you have to do for weeds to grow? Nothing. That's our old nature. What do you have to do for it to grow strong? Just do nothing. And it'll flourish. What do you have to do for your new nature to flourish or for flowers to flourish? Well, you need to water it, feed it, nurture it, protect it. It's subject to diseases, attacks by bugs and attacks by two-year-olds. My daughter Kate has an olive tree on her balcony. It has no leaves on it because she has a two-year-old son. There was an article in the uh, National Geographic about the Alaskan bull moose. And I just take a few minutes, I want to talk about this. This article is interesting because what it spoke about, it's an American article, so it talks about the fall. In the autumn, <clears throat> the males lock horns and they duke it out, they fight to see who is the dominant male for sexual preferences and the herd for the coming spring. The one that wins is always um, the bigger and the one with the strongest antlers. He always wins, which means the winner in the autumn is the one who exercised and who ate properly in the summer. The point of the article and the point of this illustration is the battle fought in autumn is won earlier. It's the preparation. So too for us. The battles we fight spiritually are won or lost in the inner man, on the inside, in our soul and spirit, in our daily quiet times with God, in our Bible reading, praying, journaling, fellowshipping, holding one another accountable, in fellowship, obedience, in divine appointments. And if you neglect those, then you'll be spiritually weaker and more susceptible to spiritual defeat. Paul prays for us to be spiritually strong. Secondly, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts, to dwell, be at home in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you would be being planted and established in love. When the Apostle says for Jesus to dwell in us, he uses a very particular word which means for the Lord Jesus to settle down and to feel at home, that he would be comfortable in us, in our presence. Back in the 1940s, there was a book written called My Heart, Christ's Home. It was a booklet, a very small little booklet, 32-pager, written by a guy, that I tried to think of his name, I think it's Robert Boyd. I couldn't remember any more than that. I have a copy at home somewhere, or at least I used to have. And his idea was that our life is like a house, and Jesus enters the house and he has the keys to all of the rooms. And so you're submitting all of your life, every dimension. If he goes into the library, that's like your mind. Or if he goes to the kitchen, that's your appetite. Or if he goes to the lounge room, that's the entertainment and so on that we watch. Your credit card will, statement will reveal your priorities and what you spend your money on. And when it comes to the entertainment, it's what you watch on TV or DVDs or on your computer or on your devices... Jesus being at home in your life 
is that there's nothing there that would offend him or displease him or grieve him. That's what the Apostle Paul prays. That Jesus would dwell within you, that he would abide in you and that you would welcome his dominant presence in your life. It's a wonderful thing to pray and to pray for one another. Spiritual intimacy. Sorry, I should have shown you that. Planted deep, let's move on. Third thing he prays. And that you may have power together with all of God's people to grasp, to comprehend. That's what this is about. Oops. To comprehend the width of God's love that's as wide as the world, as wide as every person in the world. Nobody is excluded. Its length is from creation till the end of the world. For all of history, through all of the ups and downs and errors, the highs and the lows, the heights is all the way up to glory itself until we get there. And the depths are regardless of the depths of sin that we plummet into he can reach down and he loves us and he picks us up and Paul prays that they will comprehend that that you'll grasp that that it would wash over you like a tsunami and not just grasp it but that you would know it not know it academically but know it experientially know it in your hearts and that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God it's a great prayer isn't it He prays that you'll have the capacity to be filled with all of the fullness of God. Spurgeon used to say that most of us, most of us who are maturing in Christ are really wading, like on the beach, we're wading ankle deep or even just up to our knees in the vast ocean of what God has to offer us. It's time for us to launch out and dive in. To be filled with all the fullness of God is like taking a little thimble or a cup, if you like, and filling it in the ocean. The cup is now full, but there's so much more. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity, learning about the so much more. It'll go on and on, and Paul wants it to start now. Those four points are connected. Being spiritually strong inside means that we'll be spiritually close to the Lord Jesus, that he will fill at home in us which will then lead to us understanding and grasping more about God's love and experiencing that and experiencing the fullness of God just like the points of a compass are all connected so those four things he prays are all connected you can't have one without the other and then typical of the apostle Paul he breaks into this suddenly breaks into this doxology having considered the wonder of these spiritual truths and experiences He just breaks forth now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine or think according to his power that has worked within us. That's a different translation, which I like. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. If you analyse it, he is able to do. I know a small church, Bear Valley Baptist Church, had a church of about, not, they didn't have the property that we've got, but they were a church of about 1,300, something like that. They had multiple service, they ran through the day. And they got to be that church, a very healthy church, because at one year they sat down and said, what do we want God to do? And they wrote down 12 things. We want God to do this. We want God to improve our worship terms or lead, uh, provide for us a worship pastor. We want God to do this, this, and 12 things. And over the course of the next several years, those 12 things are tick, 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 tick. God is able to do. 
and provided for them. What is it you want God to do in your life? He can do it all. There's not much he can't do. But notice the condition according to his power that is at work within you. Your response to his work in you, your submission to him, you being spiritually strong, spiritually close, obedient, yielded, that has an impact on how he answers your prayer. That's what Paul is teaching. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Great prayer, great passage. Sometimes it's helpful for us to read other people's prayers and to learn from them. That's why they're in the Bible. But you can also buy other people's books on prayer and read that to help you. The book of Psalms, John 17, they're all prayers where God is wanting to teach us and help us. We're going to do that now. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, firstly, praise and honour to you because you included us, that your love reached out and found us. And then, Lord, we pray for ourselves tonight that you would help us to be what Paul prayed, to be spiritually strong, to be spiritually close and intimate with you to increasingly understand, comprehend and to experience your amazing love and then, Lord, for our capacity to be filled with you, that you would dominate our lives and then work through our lives. Lord, tonight we want to thank you because you are amazing. You are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Lord, help us to ask you regularly and for big things and may all the glory be to you in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations through all time and even forever we ask and pray this in Jesus name everybody said amen if you'd like a question you can come and grab one of those if you'd like some chocolate or whatever it is you can have some of that we can have a nice soft if you want someone to pray for you you want to share or you know, things to talk about, or if you need to raise hand to see the block or whatever it is that you do on a Sunday night. God bless everybody.